the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's been a marvelous journey through the Sermon on the Mount. One final look next on today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. So many lessons, so many life applications available in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we find ourselves with one final look at Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 29, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Welcome to Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Join us if you would. Luke chapter 6 is where we're at, verses 20 through 29. Once again, here's Pastor Gary with this edition of Abounding Grace. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. In other words, there are going to be people out there who are going to seek to do you and I harm. So don't try to pay them back. Don't try to seek revenge. Don't try and strike back at your enemies who persecute you and hate you and slander you. You've got to maintain an attitude and a response of love towards them according to the Word of God. In other words, our treatment and our attitude toward our enemies must depend on what they are and what they do to us and on what they deserve. Why, that good-for-nothing person, he dragged my name through the mud. That's irrelevant. Well, that good-for-nothing person deserves to go to hell and burn forever. Oh, that may be. But that's irrelevant, too. Well, that good-for-nothing person is the biggest pervert I've ever seen in my life. That is irrelevant to your response to him when he persecutes and slanders you. This love that we are to have towards our enemies disregards what that person is, does, or deserves. How do we know that? Well, that good-for-nothing, sinful pervert that deserves to go to hell, God sends upon him his reign. And he causes his sun to shine upon him. God is gracious with him. God is compassionate with him. God is patient with him. And God is merciful towards him. And thank God, because we once were that person. Now, how can that be? Because God's attitude toward him in his common grace and his common generosity towards his creatures disregards anything that man deserves. He doesn't deserve to have God's rain fall upon him. He doesn't deserve to have God's sun to shine upon him. God does it out of the mercy and compassion that arises out of his great heart in total disregard of what that person really deserves. Now, how can we love like that? How can we possibly love our enemies like that? The whole secret to loving people like that is to be totally detached from two things. We must be totally detached 
from their behavior toward us, and we must be totally detached from ourselves. That is what's called self-denial. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself. Surrender yourself to me. Take up your cross and follow me. And the only way a Christian can love like that is to stop trying to figure out what the other person deserves and to love him in spite of what he deserves. And a total detachment from desire and revenge or seeking to get even in and of himself by saying, I'm not worthy of anything. Therefore, I deny myself and I give myself up to God. Those thoughts of revenge, of payback, they don't occur to me because I'm not worthy of revenge. God is sovereign and I will submit to his will. Then in verses 29 through 38, Jesus goes on to describe what Christian love for our enemies really looks like. In verse 29, he says, don't retaliate. Why? Because love is greater than anger. So let love control your anger. Or more practically, be more concerned with your responsibilities to God and not your rights. Well, I have a right to get even. I have a right to seek revenge. Well, you may. But the important thing to you is not your right It is your duty to God. Verse 30. Jesus commands us to give without demanding a return. By constantly being ready to help others in need. Simply because love is selfless. Verse 31. We are commanded to treat other people as we want to be treated. Realizing that the biggest impediment... To the golden rule is our own self-love and self-centeredness. Verse 32. Jesus commands to love those who don't love us back. You see, beloved, these are things you just can't do naturally. They cut against the grain of the fallen human being. When you look at these commands, you understand that the Christian is not only a person who is doing more than other people. He is doing what other people cannot do. Because he has been renewed by the Spirit of God. In verses 35 and 36, we are commanded to be like God in our treatment of other people. To be merciful and kind and generous as God is. In verse 37, we are commanded not to be hypercritical, judgmental, self-righteous. But we are to be more severe in judging ourselves and more charitable in our judgment of other people. We are to judge by the same standard that is in the Bible ourselves and other people. We must be willing to judge ourselves with the same strictness and probably even more so than we judge other people. We must be forgiving of what other people do to us, letting love cover a multitude of sins. In verse 38, Jesus commands us to give and keep being generous, not worrying about a thing, realizing that if we do not, if we do not measure our generosity, God will not measure his blessings toward us. Then in verses 39 through 42, Jesus reproves hypocrisy. He says in verse 39 that when the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a ditch. If some man refuses, 
to believe the word of God and he teaches other people, this is the way you're to live, based on his own opinion and his own experience, Scripture calls this man a blind man. Oh, he thinks he sees life as it really is, and if you tell him he doesn't, he'll call you a fool. But because his view of life is not based solely on the Word of God, he is blind. He will try to influence other people with his perspective and make them blind also. And they will both fall into the pit of hell. In verse 40, we have a practical little verse that gives us some basic principles of discipleship. Jesus tells us that Christians are all disciples. We're all learners. We're all followers of Christ. We never stop learning the Word of God. We never stop following Christ's commands. The disciple is never above his teacher. That is, he never gets beyond his teacher. He's never able to live or think without his teacher. That makes him what he is. He got from his teacher, and he will always have to get from his teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. He imbibes knowledge from his teacher, but he also imbibes from his teacher's own life and character and spirit. The disciple must be fully trained. He will never arrive. He always needs training in the way that he should go. But the faithful disciple will someday be like his teacher. Now, we certainly will never be equal to Jesus and, of course, never superior to him. But you see, when we continuously and constantly train ourselves in the Word of God, we can be molded into Jesus' ethical image and be Christ-like. So his character and his morality show themselves in our lives before other people. Then we have the parable about the twig and the log in people's eyes in verses 41 and 42. Jesus tells us how foolish it makes us look to have this big old log sticking out of our eye and then criticize someone who merely has a little twig in his. He says, first of all, get that log out of your own eye. Then you can exhort someone to get the twig out of their eye. The point being, Correct yourself and your sins before you try to correct someone else's. Your motivation in correcting someone else must be a love for that person and never a desire to make yourself look better. You must want to help the other person keep from destroying their life. And beloved, that effort will be worthless if your life is a mess. And you have this big log sticking out of your eye. Then in verses 43 through 45, we get the proof of discipleship. How do you know you are a real disciple of Christ? He uses parables about trees and stored treasures to tell us. He says you don't go to a fig tree to pick apples and you don't go to a pear tree to pick bananas. The nature of that tree determines, of course, the nature of the fruit. And so it is with people. By their fruit, you will know them. A person's true character is always revealed in his behavior. What you are on the inside will inevitably show itself on the outside, no matter how hard 
to try to keep that from happening. How a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And before an apple tree can bear pears, or a diseased tree can bear good fruit, the whole character and nature of that tree has to be changed. Before a bad person, which is what we are by nature as we were born into this world, untouched by God's grace. In other words, before a a bad or evil person can produce a good life, his entire evil nature and character must be changed. And it can only be changed by God and His gospel. Then Jesus talks about the two stored treasures. He said, A man who has a treasure in his heart full of good things gives good things to other people out of that treasure. A person who has a stored treasure of evil things in his heart manifests that evil in the way he speaks and the way he acts. He speaks and acts from that which fills his heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A person's true character is revealed in the words that he speaks and in his actions. Now, beloved, there is so much more that I'd like to bring out. I could preach on and on and on for several more weeks, but we need to move on. So let's uh, look at this speech in this sermon in conclusion. In his power from conclusion, he says, either build your house on a rock or build your house on sand. Jesus begins his conclusion with this probing question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Remember the the two great implications of that question, a profound question, inescapable questions. Every time it is asked of us, no matter what our perspective is, we cannot escape its force, whether we are a true Christian or a nominal Christian, whether we have heard it a hundred times or whether we've heard it for the first time. Whenever it is asked of us, we cannot escape the probe of our heart. The question implies, first of all, that discipleship involves unqualified obedience to the Word of God. He says, how dare you say that I am your Lord and Savior and do not do what I tell you? That's not a contradiction It is impossible for you to do that. You cannot say you are a Christian and then totally disregard what I command you. True discipleship involves inescapable, unqualified obedience to the law of God. And then Jesus tells us that the person who builds his house on sand or anything other than the law word of God will be swept away by the trials of this world. There's absolutely no doubt about it. You will fail. But if you build your life on Christ, surrendering everything to Him, then no matter what storms and wind beat upon your house, whether it be doubt or pressure or grief or temptation or trial, whatever it is, your house will stand firm and your life will be secure. If you build your life on any other philosophy, any other worldview or perspective than Christ Himself and His Word, you may be able to withstand some minor storms. But God will bring a storm that will be so powerful, it will knock your house down and bring you total ruin. 
And do you remember what the greatest storm of all is? It is death. I ask you again, are you ready? On what have you built your house? Well, that completes my Sermon on the Mount. So I ask you, what is that that takes center stage throughout this sermon? It's Jesus Christ himself, the one who preached this sermon. Everybody depends, everything depends on him and your relationship with him. So let me conclude by drawing out the two great emphases of the whole sermon. They are these. First, Jesus Christ is the sovereign over all human opinions and all human behavior. He's the sovereign over all worldviews, all religions, and philosophies. He's the sovereign over all theology and all ethics. He has revealed, he and his revealed truth compromise, comprise the standard by which all religions, philosophies, opinions, behaviors, worldviews, religions, morality will be judged. And everything that is not based upon him and his word will collapse. Jesus will judge your theology someday. Jesus will judge your ethics someday. Jesus will judge your religion someday. Jesus will judge your opinions and your behavior as to whether or not they are all in conformity to his will and his desire for your life. You say, I don't believe that. Well, I tell you, the fact that you don't believe it is irrelevant to the truth and the reality of it. On what do you base your understanding of God and morality and yourself and your life in this world? The Lord Jesus Christ will someday judge all of those things. For Jesus Christ is the sovereign over theology, ethics, and everything else in your life. The second great emphasis in the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the true Christian. If you want to know what a true Christian looks like, you don't go down to the local Christian bookstore and find a supposedly fuzzy book about so-called religious spirituality that says he is all bubbly and smiles and dresses a certain way and cuts his hair just so and is always carrying his Bible. The Sermon on the Mount is the picture that Christ himself has given to us to show us what a true Christian looks like. You don't need to go anywhere else. Let me just bring out three things in the Sermon on the Mount and we'll go home. First of all, according to the Sermon on the Mount, a Christian is someone who takes seriously God's law word and is seriously dedicated to applying God's law to his life. You show me someone who professes to be a Christian and who does not take seriously his responsibility to obey the law of God given to us in the Bible, and I will show you someone who is not a Christian. You say, but I just want to love people. Well, remember, love is the fulfillment of the law of God. You say, well, I, I just want to be led by a spirit. Well, the spirit is the one who wrote the law of God. What is the true picture of a Christian? A Christian is someone who loves the law of God. He recognizes he falls far short of the mark, but more than anything in his life, he wants to be what the Bible says so he can please God. Do you want to do what the Bible says? Do you want to work hard six days a week and then rest on Sunday and worship your God? 
Is Sunday a day of rest and worship for you, or is it time for play? Do you want to be an active member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ or, and sit regularly under the preached word of God because you hunger and thirst for it? Do you love to pray? Do you enjoy fellowshipping with the people of God and enjoy the communion of the saints? Do you want to give your tithes to the work of God's kingdom? Do you love the Lord's Supper, the Lord's book? I'm not asking you if you feel good about these things. I'm asking you if you love these things. And remember, love is the fulfillment of the law of God. Here you have the true picture of a Christian. A Christian is someone who is very serious about obeying God's law in his life. Is that you? Secondly, a Christian is someone who is conscious of the fact that he lives in the presence of God. He says, I live in the presence of my God and before his face every day of my life. And there is not a moment of my time when I'm not aware of that intimate relationship that I have with God as a child has with his father through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I'm I'm able to truly pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. I'm able to love by God's grace and manifest myself as the Son of the Most High God. I've received the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, so I have a right to call myself and consider myself to be a Son of God. And that personal relationship I have with Him, I can't escape it. I, I don't want to escape. A Christian is someone who lives every day consciously in the presence of God. Do you? Are you absolutely certain he's there? Or is there a question lingering in your mind? Let me assure you, beloved, he is there. But if you question his existence, it proves you do not know him as your Lord and your Savior. And in this picture of a Christian, there's a third description in the Sermon on the Mount. A Christian is someone who lives every day in the fear of God. Now, what does the fear of God mean? It means the loving, reverent submission of one's heart to God and His Word. A Christian always lives in the fear of God because he knows that someday he must stand before the tribunal of Christ. He knows that judgment day is coming. And by the way, in the heart of every human being, There is that inescapable knowledge that sin deserves to be punished and that our sins will be judged. We may try to suppress the truth and unrighteousness that the Bible says the knowledge is there. A Christian is someone who walks with fear before God because he knows that someday he's going to have to stand before God and give an account of his life. That is a description of a Christian. Does it describe you? A Christian takes seriously the law of God. A Christian takes seriously the fact that he walks every day in the presence of God. And a Christian is is someone who lives every day in the fear of God. And a Christian is someone for whom the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount is everything. Is he everything to you? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the sermon preached by the Lord Jesus Christ. But even more, we thank you for Jesus who preached it.
We thank you for the guidance that he gives us for our lives in this sermon. We thank you for the power he gives us to follow that guidance. We thank you that he is our sovereign, that he is our savior. Lord, help us to walk humbly before you, recognizing that all we are, we are because of you. Help us to walk with confidence and assurance every day of our lives, knowing nothing will separate us from your love through Christ Jesus our Lord. And help us to live every day of our lives with the earnest desire and prayer that we be more faithful today than we were yesterday. For Jesus' sake I pray. Amen. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. That's four zero eight eight six six five six zero seven. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB. That stands for Post Mailbox Number four zero two fourteen eighty four Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is nine five zero three two. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.